about to listen to a sermon from Newtown Erskineville Anglican Church. As a church, we want to see whole communities captivated by Jesus Christ and living out His freedom. It's 1 Kings chapter 17 on page 348. Now Elijah the Tishbite from Tishbe in Gilead spoke to Ahab, As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives, whom I serve, there will be neither dew nor rain in the next few years except at my word. Then the word of the Lord came to Elijah, Leave here, turn eastward, and hide in the, in the Kerith ravine, east of Jordan. You'll drink from the brook, and I have ordered the ravens to feed you there. So he did what the Lord had told him. He went to the Kirith ravine east of the Jordan and stayed there. The ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning and bread and meat in the evening, and he drank from the brook. Sometime later, the brook dried up because there had been no rain in the land. Then the word of the Lord came to him, Go at once to Zarephath of Sidon and stay there. I have commanded a widow in that place to supply you with food. So he went to Zarephath. When he came to the town gate, a widow was there gathering sticks. He called to her and asked, Would you bring me a little water in a jar so I may have a drink? As she was going to get it, he called, And bring me, please, a piece of bread. As surely as the Lord God lives, she replied, I don't have any bread, only a handful of flour in a jar and a little oil in a jug. I'm gathering a few sticks to take home and make a meal for myself and my son that we may eat it and die. Elijah said to her, don't be afraid, go home and do as you have said. But first make me a small cake, but first make a small cake of bread for me from what you have and bring it to me. And then you may make something for yourself and your son. For this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. The jar of flour will not be used up, and the jug of oil will not run dry until the land, until the day the Lord gives rain on the land. So she went away and did as Elijah had told her. So there was food every day for Elijah and for the woman and her family. For the jar of flour was not used up, and the jug of oil did not run dry, in keeping with the word of the Lord spoken by Elijah. Sometime later, the son of the woman who owned the house became ill. He grew worse and worse and finally stopped breathing. She said to Elijah, What do you have against me, man of God? Did you come to remind me of my sin and kill my son? Give me your son, Elijah replied. He took him from her arms, carried him to the upper room where he was staying and laid him on his bed. Then he cried out to the Lord, O Lord, my God, have you brought tragedy also upon this widow I am staying with by causing her son to die? Then he stretched himself out on the boy. Three times he cried to the Lord, O Lord, my God, let this boy's life return to him. The Lord heard Elijah's cry and the boy's life returned to him and he lived. Elijah picked up the child and carried him down from the room into the house. He gave him to his mother and said, Look, your son is alive. Then the woman said to Elijah, 
Now I know that you are a man of God and that the word of the Lord from your mouth is truth. Hi, I'm Kelly. Everyone turn over to um, the book of Luke and that's found on 1022 of your pew Bibles there. We're going to be reading from chapter 7, 11 to 17. Soon afterward, Jesus went to a town called Nain and his disciples and a large crowd went along with him. As he approached the town gate, a dead person was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. And a large crowd from the town was with her. When the Lord saw her, his heart went out to her, and he said, Don't cry. Then he went up and touched the coffin, and those carrying it stood still. He said, Young man, I say to you, get up. The dead man sat up and began to talk, and Jesus gave him back to his mother. They were all filled with awe and praised God. A great prophet has appeared among us, they said. God has come to help his people. This news about Jesus spread throughout Judea and the surrounding country. Well, hi, my name's Roger, and we're looking at this passage from 1 Kings chapter 17. And we're beginning this series on Elijah. Now, Elijah's a bit like the Martin Luther of his time. Uh, He didn't nail that kind of 95 thesis on the door or anything like that, but he was there to challenge what was taking place, particularly in the religion of the day, in the way that Jews were practicing their belief in God. And so that's exactly what he does. And he, he just kind of suddenly appears on the scene. He'll also suddenly disappear, and there's all kinds of crazy things that happen in the middle. And so that's what we're going to do. We're going to follow his life through. And in chapter 17 of 1 Kings, he just suddenly appears. Now, he appears at a particular time in history. And we're just going to kind of set up some of the context before we continue. Uh, how many here are fans of Gilmore Girls? No. What did you think of season seven? Like, that was just terrible, wasn't it? I mean, the way Lorelai and Rory kind of spoke to each other, it just didn't seem normal. They didn't seem to kind of relate to each other with the same kind of affection or that kind of thing, did they? And what did you think of the ending? It was just, just terrible. So unloving, so unkind. Why did that happen? Well, there was a different plot writer involved. Someone kind of skewed the plot. Of course, I've never watched it, but, you know... <laughs> Lots of people in my family did, so he kind of got it, you know, somehow. But the reality is there was a different writer and a different thing was happening in the plot. And that's kind of what happened with the people of Israel. You might remember through our Deuteronomy series, they were preparing to go over into the Promised Land. They'd arrived. When they arrived, they decided they wanted a king like other kings God gave them a king. They had a king. Several kings later, after King Solomon, things fell apart and the kingdom is divided into two. As we come to Elijah's life, it's 58 years have passed. And since then, no less than seven kings have been reigning. Each one of those kings have been taking the people of Israel away from God. Now, if you look back in chapter 16, you'll see that two last kings have actually particularly had a huge impact on the way the people of Israel have been living. Jeroboam had changed their central place of worship. Uh, He'd made 
Bethel and Dan, a place where people went to worship, arguing that Jerusalem was too hard to get to. And there he had set up calves, and they were sacrificing to calves there. Now, does that kind of sound familiar if you've been thinking about Deuteronomy? It sounds like they're kind of repeating a pattern here. Well, chapter 16 tells us that Ahab is actually even worse. And the reason he's worse is because he marries a woman called Jezebel, and Jezebel worships a completely different god, the god of Baal. Now, the thing about the god of Baal is that he is a god who people worship in terms of fertility and in terms of rain and a god providing for people's water. Now, if that god didn't work, then there was the god of mort or mortality. Um, he was a god that was a god of death. So if Baal wasn't working, then Mort would be working. And so what happened is the people of Israel were introduced into a whole different form of worship. It's into this context that Elijah suddenly appears in 1 Kings chapter 17. You might like to turn with me to 1 Kings chapter 17 verse 1. And what we're going to do, as, as we look as this story unfolds, what we're going to see is that Elijah will challenge the people by reminding them that God is the master plumber, God is the creative providor, and God is the ultimate liberator. Let's turn to the idea that God is the ultimate plumber. I don't know whether you've had much experience of plumbers. Um, every time a plumber comes to my place, they just turn off the water. Sometimes they warn me and they say, put some stuff in a bucket, and several days later you're still using the same bucket and you're trying to scrape things together. Um, and then they do their magic and dig holes and do all those kinds of things, and then suddenly the water comes back on. Well, that's what it feels like here. God is acting kind of as a master plumber. See there in verse 1, Elijah goes to speak to Ahab. Ahab the king, and I, I suspect this would have been a very scary meeting. And he says, As the Lord God of Israel lives, in whose presence I stand, there will be no dew or rain during these years except by my command. And by that he simply means by God's command. Now remember, the God of Baal is the God who brings water. What Elijah is saying here is directly the opposite. He's saying Yahweh, the Lord God, is in charge of bringing rain. And he's going to stop that rain now. He's going to bring judgment upon you because you are not worshipping him. Now, not surprisingly, in verse 2, Elijah leaves. God tells him to leave. He's obviously been threatened. And he goes eastward and he hides at a place where there's water to drink. And he starts to live there. But after a period of time, in verses 5 to 7, we see that even that amount of water starts to dry up and he's finally left with nothing. Now all of this is describing the fact that God is in charge of the weather. God is in charge of his creation. He can make it rain. He can stop making it rain. Now we'll see. come back to this theme later on as we think about Elijah, but right here and now, Elijah is saying to King Ahab and to those who can see, God is in charge, not Baal. God is the one who is in charge of all of creation. 
Now, strangely enough, we live in a world where this is often brought up. You wouldn't believe how many times I, as a minister, have been told to pray to God about the weather. People come to me and say, we would like a really clear day on our wedding day. Could you have a word with the man upstairs? Last night, in fact, there's a guy who I've had a glass of red wine with, a neighbour, a guy who's told me that I believe in fairies. He came to me and said, well, don't you have, while we're at jazz, don't you have some kind of relationship with the God upstairs? Maybe you could say a word to him about the weather. Now, of course, that's not what Elijah's doing, is it? He's merely just saying God is in charge of the weather. He will deal with it how he wants to deal with it. He's not saying, I can have a word to God about what's happening and what's not happening, and certainly I can't have a word to God and say, don't rain on this day. What he actually does is say, God's in charge of all of creation. God's in charge of the weather. It's up to him what he does. And it's up to us to pray to God to say, can you help me deal with whatever weather I come across? Because you're in charge. And this is kind of important to remember, I think. We live in a world where our environment is very important to us. And we can see the humongous damage that we're doing to our environment. We can see that the way, the way that we've been destroying it, the way we've been polluting it, we're concerned about climate change, we're concerned about the impact of that. And sometimes we can put ourselves into a position where we get very distraught and grief-stricken about those things, and sometimes we should be. But sometimes also it's worth just standing back and saying, actually, God's in charge of all of this. God's in charge of the world. God's in charge of how these things work out. He's the one that is sovereign over all of creation. So it's just worth stopping and thinking, yes, it's in God's hands. I know we're doing stuff, but actually, ultimately, this is in God's hand. Well, Elijah presents to us a God who is um, like a master plumber who turns the water on, turns the water off. But he also introduces us to a God who is like a creative providor. Now, when I think of a creative providor, I sort of think of master chef. You know, in those big storerooms they have where the people can go in and kind of pick up whatever food they want to and create something beautiful? Well, if you're thinking about that, think again, because that's not what's actually happening here. God's being very creative about his provision, but it's pretty odd. Look what happens in verse 6. The ravens kept bringing bread and meat to him in the morning and in the evening, and he would drink from the wadi. In other words, he would drink from this well that he'd been provided, but he was being provided with bread and with meat. Now, there's a slight problem here. I don't know whether you've noticed this. What do ravens eat? That's right. They eat meat that is dead, like from animals that have died in the desert. So I don't know whether that's what he's getting. It sounds pretty horrible if it is. They've been out and they've found a carcass in the midst of this drought and they've brought this meat and dropped it off to him. Now, surely it's got to be better than that, because they also drop bread off to him as well. And really what we're thinking about here is we're kind of reminded of what God provided for uh, for the people of Israel as they went through the desert. It's a way of saying, 
God will provide. God is the master chef, if you like. God is the creative providor. He understands how to provide for his people. Now we see this further take place as Elijah moves from this space to go up to another another city where he meets with a widow. When he arrives at the city gate, he finds a widow gathering wood. We see that in verse 8 and 9 and 10. And he says to this widow, can you bring me a cup of water? And she does. Now one of the things to acknowledge here is that uh, particularly in Middle Eastern uh, culture, bringing someone a cup of water is showing them great hospitality. It's a way of being generous to someone else. And, And she does that. But there's a further request. He says, can you give me a piece of bread? Now what unfolds is something terrible. Because of this drought, there is not much food or water. And it turns out that all she has left is a handful of flour and a bit of oil in a jug. And the reason she's gathering these sticks is because this is her last meal with her son. She knows she's going to die. Elijah comes to her and he says, don't be afraid. First of all, make me a loaf, bring it to me. Make some for your son and yourself. But God's going to do something amazing here. He's going to provide for you. And the way he's going to provide for you is that the the jar of flour will not become empty and nor will the oil jug become run dry until the Lord breaks the drought. God is going to provide for Elijah, for this woman and her son over and over again as this drought persists. And what this is simply a statement of is that God is in charge of providing for his people. God is the providor. Now, you must admit this is pretty unusual and pretty unique. And yet, I do know of one other circumstance where this kind of thing happened. Some of you will be familiar with the story of Corrie ten Boom. She was a woman who was caught up in the Second World War and put into a concentration camp. She was there with her sister and she became very ill. She needed medication each day and, of course, this was very difficult to come across. And they had one small bottle of medication. And they prayed because they knew it would run out. But miraculously, it didn't. Every day they went to it, gave it out, and it just continued. God continued to provide. And in fact, they actually quote, she actually quotes this passage in sense of God providing things. And then remarkably, someone gave them another bottle of medication, and as soon as they did that, the original bottle just dried up. It wasn't usable again. It's kind of an exact picture of what was taking place here with Elijah and the widow. It's a statement that God is in charge of the weather, but he's also in charge of providing for their needs. I think that's really useful to think about, to step back and to think about our own lives in that context, to think about what we have. 
We have so much, don't we? We have more than crazy sort of meat and bread, more than flour and more than oil. And every day we are able to eat. We have an abundance of good things. God has been extremely generous towards us. And I think at this point it helps me just pause and step back and say, actually, God has been gracious to me. God has provided for me in such abundant and rich ways. And it makes me pause to give thanks, actually. And that's one of the beautiful things about giving thanks as you have food, because what you're saying is, actually, I didn't earn this. I don't deserve this. I didn't create it into being. Actually, thank you, God. You've provided for my needs. So can I encourage you when you're eating and when you're meeting with friends and when you're having food, just to take a moment to thank God. Even publicly, it's lovely to do that. Just to say, God, you are so generous and you're so kind that you have provided us in such a rich and diverse way. Thank you for all that you provide. And it's worth also, actually, just as an aside, cultivating other ways to continue to remember God is good to you. I try to cultivate different ways in my life, and I don't always succeed. One of the ways I'm trying at the moment is a bit odd, but I found it really helpful. You may have noticed in our area that we have lots of rainbow flags. There's lots of rainbow flags everywhere. Every time I'm seeing them at the moment, what I'm saying is, that reminds me of the rainbow that's talked about in the Bible. It reminds me of God's sovereignty and God's provision and what God does and how he cares for this world. So every time I see a rainbow flag, I only give thanks to God because he's so gracious and so good and he's sovereign over all things. Imagine if all of us were doing that, wandering around Newtown and Erskineville. That'd be fantastic, wouldn't it? What are you doing? I'm just praying because I saw a rainbow and... I'm giving thanks to God. Rainbow flag and I'm giving thanks to God. I encourage you to do it. Now, that's an inside. That's not what this is about. But the point being, God is the God who provides. God is the God who provides in generous and kind ways. He's the creative providor. And he's reminding Elijah that that is the kind of God he is. It's not Baal who's making the provisions. It is he who is making the provisions. Well, the third thing we see is that God is the ultimate liberator. And we see this in actually two different ways as we see this passage unfold. First of all, we see that the God is the ultimate liberator of the outsider. You see, the place that Elijah has been sent is actually at the centre of Baal worship. It's where Jezebel comes from. This widow is in the city where Baal worship is at its greatest. And God has sent Elijah to this widow. And this widow is an outsider in almost every possible way. She's not a Jew, she's a Gentile. So she's a racial outsider. She's not a Jew, but she's a Gentile. So she's a religious outsider. She's a woman in her day, 
which meant that she was often treated badly. And she's a widow. She has no one to provide for her. In the, there was no kind of system to support her at this point. And so she's an economic outsider. And yet, God is providing for her. Now what's so interesting then is to turn over to Luke chapter 4 and to see that this very incident and this woman's situation is used in Jesus' first sermon. Jesus begins his first sermon in Luke chapter 4 like this. He says, The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery to the sight of the blind and to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the Lord's favour. And then Jesus goes on to tell this story about this woman, about how she was provided for through what Elijah did in his ministry with her, how he ministered to an outsider. Now, the Pharisees of the day were so angered by what he said that they decided to throw him off a cliff. They wanted to throw him off a cliff. Because what he was saying to them is, you're not welcoming the outsider, you're not living in the way that I have determined, and I welcome the outsider. I have come to proclaim the good news to those who are poor. I've sent been sent to proclaim to those who are captives to give recovery of sight to the blind. If you feel like an outsider, in some ways that's great news because God reaches out to outsiders and he wants to call you in. He wants to make you his own. And once you understand that, all of a sudden, you realise how important it is to include outsiders. Because of what God's done for you, then it starts to transform the way you think about others and about the way you think about people who might be considered outsiders. How many outsiders are on your daily prayer list? Are you praying for people, people who might not feel comfortable, might not fit? If God answered all your prayers this week, who would be in church next week? Can I encourage you to be praying, to be living in such a way that includes the outsider, that brings the outsider before God because he has taken us as outsiders and brought us to himself. Now the truth is we often fail to do that. We often fail to recognise that God is the master plumber who creates all things. We often fail to recognise that God is the creative providor. And so we need him to continue to work in us and to continue to transform us. And as we continue this story, we start to see a hint of what is God's going to do in order to transform us. Because what we see is that God is a liberator in another way. You might remember at the beginning of the sermon, I talked about the idea that there was the God called Mort, the God of death. 
And it would appear, as we come to this part of the story, that that God is going to win because this same widow with the son who's been provided for suddenly finds herself in a position where her son is dying. Initially, she's extremely angry with Elijah. See verse 17 and 18. How come you're here, Elijah? Aren't you bringing death upon my son? Are you bringing tragedy to my house. Elijah does something really very odd. He picks up her son and he takes him upstairs and he lays him down in his own bed. And then he prays for the son and he lays over the top of the son. He spreads himself over the son. And he calls out to God, can you please bring this boy back to life? Well, the extraordinary thing is that this boy comes back to life. And he takes the boy downstairs to his mum and says, look, your son is alive. Now, this is the first recorded time that someone is brought back from death to life. What's going on here? What, what, what is Elijah doing? Well, it's difficult to tell, actually. Maybe, maybe what's happening is Elijah's saying, come, lie on my bed, and I will take your place. Take my life for yours. I'm not really sure what's going on. But what we do know is that this event points forward to a time when Jesus will lay down his life and spread out his arms so that we could be rescued, so that we could be his, so that we could have life. And I think that this incident is what we are being reminded of or what it's pointing forward to. That Jesus will come There will be a miracle, and it's the miracle of Jesus, the resurrected. Jesus, who dies on the cross, comes back to life, whose power is revealed over death. A power that gives you and me new life. And I want to suggest to you that it's only as we grasp and understand what has been done on our behalf, the life that we have been given, as we grasp those things, the plot lines of our life will start to change too. The way we live, the way we do things, the way we go about praying, the way we view other people, the way we accept what God has done for us will start to change. And a new story will be starting started to be written into our lives. So this evening I want to invite you to let God write the storyline of your life. Amen.
Thanks for listening to the Newtown Erskineville Anglican Church Podcast. For more audio content and information about our church, please visit neac.com.au.